Hello and welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast. My name is George Cooper and today I have the immense pleasure of speaking to a man who has devoted 55 years of his life to human rights campaigning. Since 1967, Peter Tattle has campaigned for human rights, LGBT equality, democracy and global justice. During that time, he's taken part in 3,000 protests, been arrested 100 times and suffered 300 violent assaults. He turned 70 in January, and last year his film, Hating Peter Tatchell, drew critical acclaim when it was released on Netflix. Peter was born in Melbourne, Australia in 1952. He moved to the UK in 1971 and has spent the next half decade campaigning on behalf of minority groups. He is, however, most renowned for his LGBT equality campaigning. He became an activist for the pioneering Gay Liberation Front in 1971, and the following year organised the UK's first Gay Pride Parade. In 1987, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, Peter launched the UK AIDS Vigil Organisation, the country's first organisation dedicated to defending the human rights of people living with HIV. In the 1990s, he spearheaded the outrage campaign against police harassment of the LGBT plus community. Peter is now director of the Peter Tatchell Foundation, and he continues to campaign for human rights around the world. Peter, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, an absolute privilege to have you on. Very glad to join you. I suppose a good first question to ask you would be 55 years human rights campaigning, uh, 300 physical assaults. What are your reflections on what you've achieved over the last 55 years? Well, when I began my first campaign, in 1967, age 15, when I was still at school, I never had any idea that it would take over my life and this would be a lifelong goal and commitment. But I'm so honoured and privileged to have been part of so many pivotal historic campaigns over the last five decades, everything from um, the campaign against apartheid in South Africa, and I was part of the global movement to challenge that unjust racist regime, um, to campaigns here in Britain to secure a comprehensive equality act to protect everyone against discrimination. An idea that I came up with in 1978, and which for almost two decades was rejected by successive governments as, quote, being extremist. So, you know, I've seen a lot and I've helped change a lot, but it's never been me alone. It's me working with others. We together make the changes. That's a very interesting point that you say it's never you alone. But I was going to ask you first about what is actually the climactic scene in your film, which we'll come on to, but it's when you travel to Russia um, ahead of the 2018 World Cup uh, and you staged a, a one-man demonstration, uh, I believe it's outside the Kremlin, uh, against LGBT persecution in Chechnya. And I just found this so striking because it really was, I believe, you on your own with a cameraman. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what was that like? It, it was an incredibly hostile atmosphere. It must have been a really, really intense and quite frightening experience. Well, I did that protest on the opening day of the World Cup in 2018 in Moscow to support the very brave, heroic 
Russian LGBT plus activists and indeed their straight friends and allies, um, they don't have the privilege of a British passport and the easy exit out of the country. Um, they are there 365 days a year and subject to very draconian laws and repressions by the state. So supporting them is what drove me to do that. And although I was afraid, you know, I potentially could have been uh, jailed for a number of years, um, although I was afraid, my sense of supporting those Russian activists override my, fe my fears. Um, and, you know, it did make an impact. It, it, it robbed President Putin of his glory on the opening day. Uh, the world headlines were about my protest and not important because it was me, but just important that the persecution of LGBT plus people in Chechnya got in the headlines around the world, raised public awareness and continued to sustain the pressure on the Russian government. What was the reaction from LGBT plus groups in, in Russia at the time? Well, of course. I've been working with them for many, many years, but I didn't tell them about the protest so that they could have complete proof that they were never involved in any way. So the purpose was to protect them against possible repercussions by um, the Russian state. Um, once I'd done the protest, um, their response was, thank you. <laughs> um, they made it very clear that it was too dangerous and risky for them to do something. So they really appreciated the fact that I'd done something. And uh, I can remember going to a Russian LGBT event um, the day afterwards and um, being given a, a beautiful, huge bouquet of red roses. Um, you know, for me, what I did was, was, was nothing. The real heroes are the people inside Russia for risking their lives and liberty to defend democracy and human rights. It was interesting, though, to see the extent to which it takes a toll on your sort of your physical and your, and your mental well-being. You could you could really see the stress before that demonstration. I mean, tell me a little bit about tell us a little bit about the the, the toll it's taken on you over yeah over the decades. Well, doing protests against you know tyrants in countries where there is a tyrannical regime, it's, just, it's, it's risky, it's dangerous. And so always I'm incredibly nervous. You know, I'm, I'm shaking with nervous anxiety. I get goose pumps, my body temperature plummets. I get a splitting headache from the nervous tension. My stomach churns over like I'm gonna vomit. Um, it is very, very nerve wracking. But um, I just keep my eyes fixed on the prize of exposing injustice and standing in solidarity with those who are being victimized. And that's what sort of sustains me. But sure, afterwards, I almost collapse from the exhaustion and the mental and physical exhaustion and nervous tension. Um, and the sense that, you know, usually I get away with it uh, or, or usually that the penalty isn't too severe. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you've genuinely feared for your life? Certainly when I went to Moscow in 2007 to support the Russian bid to hold a gay pride parade, um, the police offered no protection and actually colluded with far-right neo-Nazis and Russian Orthodox extremists. Um, They were allowed to attack me and others. Um, And I can remember as I was being kicked and punched and I was starting to lose consciousness, I thought, I can see the police, were, you know, they were just like 12 feet away. They just stood there with folded arms. And I thought, you know, are they going to let me get maimed, killed? You know, you know what is their cutoff point to intervene, to stop the attack and to take me to a place of safety? So I, I was incredibly nervous then, and you know, I, I, I started started to panic a bit um, at the potential consequence. Um, and I, I've been in that kind of situation quite a few times. I mean, uh, on the second attempt that I made to arrest the Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe in Brussels in 2001, I was actually beaten unconscious by his bodyguards. But before that, I had about seven or eight very severe blows to the head and you know even just one severe blow at the right angle with the right pressure can potentially kill you so that that was very nerve-wracking too um but um i have very luckily got off relatively lightly um, by comparison to human rights defenders in Iran or Saudi Arabia, Russia or Uganda, you know, I haven't been imprisoned, I haven't been tortured, and I certainly haven't been killed. So looking at on the bright side, <laughs> I feel I, I've, I've, I've been lucky and I'm not complaining much. I've seen in sort of several interviews you've done before that you You've clearly said that you've got no regrets from from anything you've done over the last 50 years. Have you changed at all? Has your approach changed? Have you had to sort of become maybe a little bit less confrontational in terms of just the the, the threat to your health, as you said? Or are you just carrying on as, as as you are? I've been pretty consistent throughout the last five plus decades. Um, You know, my original inspiration and template from activism was the black civil rights movement in America led by Dr. Martin Luther King. So I saw that model of nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience as a very useful, effective way of raising public awareness about issues, putting pressure on the authorities um, and securing change. And I've, I've continued continue to do that ever since. Um, you know, I've, I've never engaged in violence. I've never caused criminal damage. Um, all the protests have been completely peaceful, although I have often been on the receiving end of violence. Um, and I think that has helped win some grudging respect from uh, quite a few of my critics. They may not entirely agree with me, but I think they see that I'm a principled person. I'm prepared to take risks and put myself in danger in order to follow my conscience and do what I believe in.
And over time, that, that's got grudging, grudging respect from some of my critics. We do see that in the film, don't we? Um, and it's such a striking title, Hating Peter Tatchell. And I just wonder, does someone in your position need to be hated in order to achieve real change? Well, you're right. The, the Netflix film um, was called Hating Peter Tatchell because when the director uh, went to begin making this documentary, he was struck by the level of hatred directed against me. So that's how the title came about. Um, I think that almost inevitably, when you're challenging the status quo, particularly people who've probably got away with injustice and abuses for years, um, they, do, they do react. Uh, you do you do get a backlash, and you you do get hatred from those whose consensus and way of doing things is being questioned and challenged. Um, but I take it as a backhanded compliment. You know, the, you you could look at all the abuse and hate and threats I've had as being totally demoralising, but I think to myself, it actually proves that I'm effective, because if I wasn't making an impact, people would just ignore me. The fact that they lash out with this extreme hatred and violence and threats and incitement, that indicates that I'm hitting a raw nerve and a raw nerve that needs to be hit. One of the other things that struck me about the film, as well as being it's a very dramatic film, it's a very intense film from start to finish, but it's also very personal, isn't it, in that it focuses quite a lot on your relationship with your mum and, and your family and how her religious beliefs conflict with your sexuality. And I thought that was really touching. And I just wondered how much of that drove your, drove your work, how much of that, those personal challenges, that, that personal struggle? I wouldn't say much. I think I've come to human rights from a, a rational, ethical point of view. Um, undoubtedly, my own background has had some impact. Um, my parents were extremely religious. They were evangelical Pentecostalists. Um, for them, homosexuality was a, a sin almost on a par with murder or rape. You know, one, one of the worst possible things. Um, they were also very conservative, working class. My father was a factory worker. Um, neither had much education. Um, we were very poor by comparison even to other working class people because at that time in Australia when I was growing up, there was no equivalent of the National Health Service. Uh, you know, medicine and hospital care was all private and you had to pay for it. Um, and that made us very poor because my mother suffered from chronic life-threatening asthma. And she nearly died, in fact, about eight times during my childhood. And I had to help bring up my younger brother and two younger sisters. Uh, it may be very independent and resourceful from an early age. I actually felt quite proud of, you know, that I managed from the age of eight, you know, to do things like cooking and you know, washing and cleaning the house, you know. Um, of course, it yeah. took me away from my school friends and playtime, but um, I, I sort of embraced the responsibility and, and, and felt rather chuffed that I could do it that i could manage it um so certainly yeah 
my family background had did have an impact. Um, plus, of course, my stepfather was very brutal. Um, I was often beaten. Um, so I suppose you could say that that gave me, or one was one of the factors that helped give me a sense of uh, the need to fight injustice. Yeah. Another moment that stood out in the film was you said that when you arrived in the UK in the early 70s, you estimated it would be about 50 years before we saw LGBT equality. Um, and this might be a difficult question to answer, but do you feel that we've achieved it in the UK in those 50 years? Well, certainly that was a guesstimate. I, I was only 17 years old. Um, I wasn't aware of any LGBT plus movements. You know, I made that guesstimate based on the experience of the black civil rights movement in America. It took them about 50 years uh, mm -hmm. to get rid of the main sort of legal discriminations against African-Americans. Um, in terms of um, where we are today, um, it's probably important to remember that there were no significant reforms in Britain until uh, 2000, when the ban on LGBT plus people serving the armed forces was finally removed, followed by the equalization of the age of consent at 16 for everyone, um, the repeal of the ban on same-sex couples fostering and adopting children, uh, legislation to protect LGBT plus people against discrimination in housing, employment, and the provision of goods and services, um, first civil partnerships, and then same-sex marriage. Now, all of that happened within a very short period of time. So up until 1999, Britain had the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world. Some of them, like the law against anal sex, dating back centuries to 1533 during the reign of King Henry VIII. Um, but with the advent of same-sex marriage, the legalization of same-sex marriage in 2013 and the first ceremonies the following year, Britain had some of the best laws. So it sort of leapfrogged from, from worst to best. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's very gratifying to see that Britain now has got rid of all the major significant legal discriminations. But there are still issues. I mean, some of our quality laws do have limited exemptions but exemptions nonetheless, for faith organizations. So they are allowed to discriminate against LGBT plus people in certain circumstances if it's deemed necessary to preserve, quote, their religious ethos. Um, now, this just doesn't apply to places of worship, but also faith-run schools, hospitals, and nursing homes. They are allowed to discriminate. No other institution or organization is, but they can. Um, so that's the privileging of religion in the law of the land. Um, we still have um, no ban on LGBT plus conversion therapy, despite all the world's leading psychiatric, medical and counseling organizations saying that it is unethical, harmful and ineffective. It does not work. Um, we still don't have reform of the Gender Recognition Act, which in 2004 was progressive, but still puts great hurdles in the way of trans people who want to 
uh, affirm their true legal identity. You know, they I mean, have to get medical a medical diagnosis. This, in that sense, regarding the situation facing transgender people, I mean, this has been another, I would say, fairly extraordinary week. We're, we're recording this in mid-February, and this week we've seen Stonewall and uh, a group of other tw- uh, 20 other organisations calling for the UK's Equality Watchdog, which is the uh, EHRC, to lose its internationally recognised hum- uh, status as internationally recognised human rights body. So what we essentially have at the moment is Stonewall sort of at loggerheads with the UK's Equality Watchdog. It's a, an extraordinary and, and a really toxic situation at the moment, isn't it? Absolutely. And Stonewall is absolutely right. Um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission has made a big, big mistake in seeking to row back and oppose uh, reforms to ease the lives of trans people. Um, it has legitimate concerns about women's welfare and safety, but to protect those uh, rights and freedoms for women, it is not necessary to discriminate against trans people. And this is where the Equality Watchdog has made a really big blunder. Should, I should say, yes, that the EHRC wrote to the Scottish government recently asking it to pause plans to make it easier for people to legally change their gender. So your stance is quite unusual in this, in, in that you are calling for unity, aren't you? And as you said, you're, you're saying that transgender rights and women's rights are not mutually exclusive. What where do you think we go from here? Is it, is it just a question of better communication? How, how do we get to the, <laughs> to the bottom of what is a really difficult problem to solve? Well, what the Equality and Human Rights Commission is doing, in common with uh, anti-trans campaigners, is setting up a false scenario whereby they deem that trans women in particular are predators that they are a threat to other women. Now, it's true that there have been a handful of instances where trans women have done bad things, and quite rightly, they have been called out and punished. But it is not right to therefore conclude that because a handful of trans women have done bad things, that all trans women must be penalised. We don't say that because some people are bad drivers and cause accidents that we'll ban cars. We don't say that just because uh, a small number of Muslims are terrorists, that all Muslim people should be put under surveillance and subject to draconian legal restrictions. We don't say that. We don't generalise in that way, in the way that trans critics generalise about trans people. So that's the first thing. We need to stop the generalisation and stop the demonisation. Um, the handful of Trans people have done bad things are a tiny, unrepresentative minority, and you don't make public policy and law based on what a few bad apples may do. Um, now, having said that, we do need to address the issue of women's safety. And, you know, I have a friend who works for a women's centre in the north of England. They have accepted trans women in their centre for the last few years with the agreement of both the staff and the women's users. Uh, they have never had a problem. Um, they vet all women coming into the centre, uh, quite rightly and appropriately, because 
let's not forget that most of the women who do harm to other women are not trans. They're biological women. So to single out trans women for particular penalties or restrictions is again irrational and creates a false sense of security for women. This, I mean, I suppose it's not an exaggeration to call it a demonization of, of transgender women. Has it, has that, in your experience, has that always existed? Is it in the UK? Is it, is it a new phenomenon? Because it seems to me that it's something which has really become toxic in the last sort of three to five years. Do you think that's the influence of, of social media or has it always just been there under the surface? No, you're right that the new toxic atmosphere against trans people is recent. It never used to exist. Um, but the reason it exists is because trans people are becoming visible and making a claim for their rights. And so therefore, the people who oppose trans rights are coming out of the woodwork and organizing a backlash. It's, it's classic every, for every social movement. When the lesbian, gay and bisexual movement, you know, got going in the 1970s in a big way, there was again a huge backlash from straight people who didn't like and support LGBT plus rights. Um, you know, we got subjected to the same kind of demonization as trans people are now experiencing. But in both instances, it is wrong. It is totally and utterly unjustifiable to resort to this demonization and vilification. It's incompatible with human rights, values and ethos, and it is causing huge harm to the trans community because if you're on the receiving end of this, you can easily imagine the mental distress it causes. And, you know, it, it coincides with increasing um, depression, anxiety and fears uh, among trans people. You know, they feel they're being got at, and they are. And those of us who are allies need to stand with them to make the point that trans rights are human rights. You know, trans women, trans women are not the same as biological women. They are different, but different is okay. You know, there shouldn't be a conflict between biological women and trans women because they both suffer from misogyny. They suffer from prejudice, harassment, domestic violence, sexual assault, hate crime. This ought to give all women, including trans women, a common interest in working together, not pulling apart and attacking each other. Absolutely. And I suppose, I suppose the point that is forgotten so often is, like you say, the sheer impact this has on, on, tran on transgender individuals. I, I saw a, st a stat the other day that I think more than 50% of young transgender people have, uh, I think it was either attempted or considered suicide. I mean, it's, that's extraordinary, really. It, it is so profoundly shocking. And all the more shocking that in those circumstances that people are lining up to attack and defame trans people. Um, now, there are some people who claim to be feminists and in all other normal circumstances, yeah, I accept that they probably, in many instances, do great work for women's rights. Fantastic. But look at what their campaign against the trans community has done. 
it has brought together this vast swirling cesspit of misogynists, far-right extremists, and others who most feminists would not want to be seen within a million miles of. So the question is, can't they reflect and see that the tactics they are using is um, bringing together and empowering and emboldening people with whom normally they would be totally opposed? I mean, you know, QAnon activists are now in on the act. You know, anti-trans is part of their, now, now part of their mantra along with all this motley collection of far-right fanatics as well, plus, of course, religious and uh, extremists. You know, on the anti-trans bandwagon, you have fundamentalists from the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and other faiths. Uh, they're all piling on. And I'm sure that 99% of these people are not people that most feminists would be comfortable being seen within a million miles of. In that respect, how how much of a worrying time is this in the UK generally to be LGBT? I mean, I'm thinking also of the government proposals to reform the Human Rights Act, which can all which can have all sorts of repercussions uh, on LGBT migrants. Is it a slippery slope that we could end up reversing a lot of the progress we've made? in the LGBT community over the last, you know, over recent decades? I think it's probably unlikely that things will go into reverse, that laws passed will be repealed. But certainly we're not very unlikely to see much more progress. And the toxic atmosphere is making life much more unpleasant and difficult for LGBT people. But T's are in the transgender people are in the main front line. They are in the main. They're they're, they're in that process more than LGBs. Looking at the situation globally, I mean that it, it's also quite astonishing to see that sixty nine countries worldwide homosexuality is still illegal. We've seen uh, laws against L- in inverted commas LGBT propaganda in countries like Poland and Hungary. How concerning is that situation to you? Well, it's very concerning because, of course, Poland and Hungary are part of the European Union. And the European Union uh, enshrines in its Charter of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms um, the principle that everyone is entitled to equal treatment and protection against discrimination. Now, that is not what's happening with regard to LGBT plus people in those two countries. So. We have a situation where they are with pretty much with impunity being allowed to wage very intensely homophobic, biphobic and transphobic campaigns and get away with it. Um, There has been a small amount of EU money that's been withdrawn from um, some uh, places in Poland and Hungary, but it's tiny. You know, the, the bulk of the EU budget is they're still getting all the the, um, the payments as per usual. Um, it isn't, of course, just in Poland and Hungary. We're, we're seeing back, backlash in, in Russia, Indonesia. We saw it for a while in Ethiopia. Um, 
but then again, bad though backlash is, and no one would ever wish it on anyone, um, backlash is a sign that the LGBT plus community is making progress. You know, if they weren't making impact and progress, uh, no one would care. They'd just be ignored and, and left to be. But the fact there is this backlash shows that the community's there with their allies, non-LGBT non plus allies, are making inroads. And that's a jolly good thing. Absolutely. And also, I know you're doing work uh, for LGBT people in Afghanistan. Of course, it's a, a horrendous situation that they're facing at the moment. Can you tell us, can you tell us uh, about that work? Well, my foundation, the Peter Dutchell Foundation, is not working directly in Afghanistan. What we're doing is helping and supporting um, LGBT plus people in Afghanistan who are seeking exit and asylum in Western countries like Britain. We are working with Nemat Sedat, um, you know, probably the first openly gay Afghani in the world. Um, um, and he is trying to organize, and we are working with him to organize um, the evacuation and asylum for over 800 LGBT plus Afghanis. Uh, we've currently um, forwarded to the government, British government's LGBT plus envoy, Lord Herbert, um, proposals that the UK should take the first tranche of 100. Um, these are people who are at serious risk of being arrested, tortured, or even killed by the Taliban. Um, some of them are still in hiding in conditions of great vulnerability inside Afghanistan. Others have managed to make it to neighboring countries like Pakistan and Uzbekistan. Um, but their legal status there is very dodgy. Um, they don't have uh, any finances to sustain them. Um, they're living in secret safe houses, which at any time could be discovered, and they would be at risk of Taliban agents uh, killing them there. You know, the Taliban operates pretty openly, well, not officially, but unofficially pretty openly um, and freely in, Af in, in Pakistan. Um, the Pakistan state, of course, helped sustain the, the Taliban um, and gave them bases in, in Pakistan from which to operate. So LGBTs are not safe in uh, Pakistan at all. I mean, do you feel that there should be more, you know, international, more of an international effort for this? Because it does feel to some extent like the Peter, Peter Tattle Foundation and other LGBT groups are fighting this battle very much alone. Well, there's no doubt that um, having heard Western countries um, cry in outrage at the Taliban and pledge and promise to help evacuate people, that um, that process has pretty much ground to a halt. I think the UK has so far only accepted 29 Afghan LGBT plus refugees. 29. It's absolutely pathetic and shameful. Um, you know, we promised so much and delivered so little. And that is why we are now, again, pressing the UK government with a dossier of named individuals who have been vetted, their bona fides have been checked. We're now pressing the UK government to accept 100 of these out of the 800 plus that Nomad Sadat has identified. 
And just finally, Peter, we of course have the 2022 World Cup in Qatar coming up. Uh, I don't think anybody needs to be reminded of Qatar's human rights record, but needless to say, uh, it's not good. Homosexuality is still uh, punishable. It's illegal, punishable by up to three years in prison. LGBT campaigning uh, is illegal. Uh, Josh Cavallo, the Australian footballer who came out last year, he said he'd be afraid to go to Qatar uh, to play. Uh, are you? I'm not expecting expecting you to tell me your plans, but uh, broadly, what, are, are you planning to do something out in Qatar? Well, my foundation has been working on Qatar, and it's abysmal human rights record ever since it was granted permission to hold the 2022 World Cup by FIFA, the International Football Federation. Um, but we're approaching it not just from an LGBT plus rights perspective. We're also concerned about the uh, abuse of women's rights. For example, in Qatar, um, women have to get permission from a male guardian to study, marry, and travel. Um, we're also looking at it from the perspective of the abuse of migrant workers' rights. Um, since being granted the right to host the Football World Cup, uh, over six and a half thousand migrant workers have died. Over six and a half thousand have died. I mean, that's, that's absolutely shocking and damning. Um, you know, I've just been recently sent some photographs of the conditions in which these migrant workers live. Um, five or six crammed into a, a, a tiny room with bed bunks, um, only communal showers, washing facilities and toilets. Um, not enough, given the numbers of migrant workers. Um, many of them have not been properly paid. Some have been not paid for months. Um, it, it is really, it isn't just an LGBT plus issue. It's, it's, a, it's a broad, much broader human rights issue. And of course, you know, Qatar is also, there's loads of other things, you know, you can't form trade unions, you can't go on strike. Uh, the right to protest is is, is prohibited. Um, there's no genuine free press. Um, across the board, Qatar is bad news when it comes to human rights. And, you know, FIFA should have never, ever given Qatar the right to host the World Cup. And as you probably know, there are allegations that it was given that permission as a result of corruption and bribery. Now, that is unproven. But certainly the evidence looks, you know, in many people's eyes, quite damning. Um, you know, hosting a prestigious international sporting event like the World Cup is not a right. No one has a right to hold it. It's an honour and a privilege. And I've always said that that honour and privilege should only be accorded to those countries that comply with internationally agreed human rights standards. And if that means that lots of countries won't get to host, host these events, fine. So be it. Um, we can't reward those who abuse human rights and tyrannise their own people. I think football will have to bear that shame, won't it? It will. It will. And, um, you know, the only silver lining is that the fact that Qatar has been granted the right to host the World Cup gives people like me and others an opportunity to shine a spotlight on their human rights abuses and to get media coverage of it. 
absolutely. Well, Peter, uh, it's been an absolute privilege uh, speaking to you today. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, just finally wanted to ask you, uh, I had to smile when you said you plan to carry on for another 25 years campaigning. Uh, do you plan to take a, a break at any point? <laughs> I last had a holiday in 2008. Right. That was when, and that, that was when friends presented me fair accompli with an air ticket and hotel voucher. Um, right. So I, I didn't have much choice. Was it a holiday uh, or was it a working holiday? No, it was a holiday. It was a holiday. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I love the work I do. Um, every now and then I do get, you know, some very positive feedback from people I've helped. And um, I can see the success of the campaign. So that's what drives me on. It keeps success is a great motivator. I mean, I look back at all the successes that I have helped contribute to. Um, that's what, you know, powers me on, you know. And I, I do want to keep going. And um, I believe that there's probably another 25 years in me, perhaps not working 16 or 14 hours a day like I do now, but um, perhaps I have to slow down a bit when I get to my 90s. But, hey, um, the passion is still there. Well, Peter, whatever the future holds, um, as an LGBT man myself, I'd like to say thank you very much. And first and foremost, please do look after yourself. Uh, if people want to get involved with the Peter Tatchell Foundation, what's the best way for them to do that? Please go to the website, petertatchellfoundation.org. Uh, there you'll see a resume of the different campaigns we are working on. And if you'd like to, in the top right-hand corner, there's a button which says Join Us. If you click on that and give us your email address, we will send you a weekly bulletin of a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. Uh, most of them very serious, but some quite quirky and funny as well. Um, so I think you'll find it interesting and sometimes even entertaining. Uh, there's no charge. It's totally free. So please sign up and, and join our little human rights community. Uh, I'll just sign off with my motto, which I hope will inspire you. And it's very simple. Don't accept the world as it is dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen thank you so much thank you very much peter